welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Tuckwiller, Senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed are for general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I have with me today Andrew Burke, a mental health clinical nurse consultant working in regional New South Wales. Just to start with, Andrew, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your role? Uh, yes, um, I'm, as, as I say, I'm a mental health nurse. Uh, my current role is uh, concentrating on acute mental health presentations, particularly to emergency departments and dealing with them, identifying their healthcare needs at that point. Now, knowing how to apply the Mental Health Act and being confident as to which forms and how to complete them can be a bit challenging when working in the emergency department. Now, we'll start with a hypothetical case. I'm working in a rural hospital that is a declared mental health facility. A man in his 20s is brought in by police and ambulance after being found wandering around a local caravan park, calling out that the aliens are coming to get us and brandishing a wooden plank like a sword. Now, in New South Wales, we have declared mental health facilities. So, Andrew, what does this actually mean in a practical sense? Okay, in a practical sense, it means that it's been nominated by the uh, the Minister for Health or the Director General of Health, that that's a site that people can be taken to under the Mental Health Act to be assessed to determine whether they have a mental illness and whether they need involuntary mental health treatment. I see. So... In a rural hospital that is a declared mental health facility but doesn't have a mental health unit, can we admit scheduled patients? No. it's uh, If it's an emergency department that's declared, then that's only pertaining to that emergency department. So that means legally that person could be taken to that site and detained for assessment. If it's determined they need admission, then they must go to a declared inpatient mental health facility. So usually the smaller rural hospitals that have a declared ED, they will then have to go on to another facility that actually is an inpatient mental health unit. Right. So we'll we'll keep them in our ED and then arrange transfer. Yes. They they can't be admitted to a medical ward for ongoing treatment of a mental illness. No. Okay. Now, getting back to our case, these are high-risk patients who need a full assessment to check for any acute medical, surgical or toxicological condition And in particular, you know, encephalitis is something we need to keep in mind. Now, for this patient, we are happy that there's no clinical evidence of any of the above and is assessed as having an acute psychotic episode. Just to start with the basics in our assessment, what is an authorised medical officer? Okay, an authorised medical officer is a doctor, medical doctor who's been trained and authorised by a um, medical superintendent of the mental health facility. So each local health district will have a person who's actually the psychiatrist who's authorised to exercise duties under the Mental Health Act, and he can deputise, he can actually give authority to doctors to fulfil those duties as well. And they're referred to as an authorised medical officer. I see. And what is the Mental Health Act? The Mental Health Act, it's state-based legislation. So each state and territory in Australia has its own law. In New South Wales, the Mental Health Act It governs the care and treatment of people of New South Wales who present with a mental illness. And that's that's what it focuses on and that's all it does. That's all if a person is deemed to have a mental illness or a mental disorder, then this is the act that applies. Okay. So how would we define a mental illness? Okay, to be determined to have a mental illness, 
it's in the in the New South Wales legislation. It's all based on signs and symptoms. So it's signs and symptoms of having delusions, so fixed false ideas, yeah. um, hallucinations, um, serious thought form disorder, serious disturbance in mood, or sustained or repeated irrational behaviour. Um, it doesn't require a definitive diagnosis. In fact, we discourage doctors from writing a specific diagnosis on the forms. We're interested in the signs and symptoms that person's acutely mentally unwell well at this point. We don't need to do a differential diagnosis. Okay, so it's more important for us to do a thorough assessment and record of their behaviour and their ways of thinking and, and any of those features that would suggest that they're mentally unwell. Yes, and importantly, it um, focuses on their current presentation. So although their history is important, it's really focusing on their current presentation. So having a history of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder is, is important to the person's care, but their presentation is determined by their current signs and symptoms. Now, our patient doesn't want to be admitted to a psychiatric unit. What are the criteria for a mentally ill person to need involuntary treatment? To inquire treatment involuntarily, the person has to be mentally ill, so that's according to those signs and symptoms. But importantly, the New South Wales legislation is based on risk. So the presence of risk, so the risk of harm to themselves or others is important. That's that's really what it's it's about. So risk of serious harm. We can, if, we've, if we know of a person very well, we know their history, we, we've got a very good understanding of the course of their illness, we can take into consideration their continuing condition. So if we've got early warning signs that we know that this person demonstrates when they're about to become acutely unwell, we can take that into account. Importantly too, there's no other care of a less restrictive kinds available. So if the person presents with risks, so for example, a person who's depressed and they're expressing suicide ideas, but we have a reasonably safe discharge plan and responsible people who can watch out for that person and we estimate that that person can guarantee that person's safety, then we're not obliged to admit in every case where there's risk. If we've got a solid plan and reasonable plan for, to manage those risks in the community. Now, what about the criteria for a mentally disordered person to need involuntary admission? Yes, mentally disordered causes a lot of confusion in the New South Wales Act. Uh, it's actually intended for people who are experiencing uh, a personal crisis. Um, circumstances have uh, conspired against them and they're not able to cope. And usually they're overwhelmed at that time and they're often expressing harm to themselves. They're often suicidal or they're acting in an irrational manner. The expectation is the person will rapidly recover. So the timelines for detaining that person under the Act are, are quite brief. But to be mentally disordered, you need to be displaying irrational behaviour and a significant physical risk to yourself or others. Okay. Um, and importantly, again, no other care for less restrictive kinds available. So, Andrew, would you be able to elaborate a little bit more about how we go about assessing the risk of harm? Okay. In the Mental Health Act, it refers to harm. It doesn't have a definition in the act of harm. So it's meant to be the common person's understanding of a risk of serious harm. So that includes a risk of harm to self. So that includes like things like ideas of suicide or self-injury. It can also be neglect. So if a person is psychotic and having ideas that everything's poisoned and they can't eat or drink anything, then that clearly is a risk to themselves. Okay. It can also be a risk to others. So assault, battery, harassment. And when we're considering whether someone's mentally ill under the Act, we can also consider a risk to a person's reputation. 
And that's really there for people who have episodes of mania as part of a bipolar illness. So they're expending extravagantly, they're highly energetic, they're highly confident, they're making rash decisions, and it's a gross change from that person's usual personality. We can use that risk to a person's reputation to say that this person requires treatment, involuntary treatment, under the Mental Health Act. What sort of things would exclude a person from being considered mentally ill or disordered? Uh, That's a very important part of the Act because we, we have clear exclusion criteria under legislation about what can't be regarded as mentally ill or disordered. So you can't be considered mentally ill or disordered merely because of religious beliefs or philosophies, it's your sexual preference or orientation, being sexually promiscuous, um, engaging in immoral or illegal conduct, having a developmental disability, taking alcohol or other drugs, or engaging in antisocial behaviour. They may be elements of a mental illness, but if it's just those things, so for example, just that somebody's chosen a different religion, that can't be considered a mental illness. If we have decided that the person does have a mental illness, uh, we need to do some documentation. What's a Schedule 1 and who can fill these out? Okay, a Schedule 1 is part of the Mental Health Act that allows a person to be detained and taken to a declared mental health facility for assessment. And that's what it does. It doesn't guarantee an admission. It just means the person will be taken to a declared facility, whether that be a declared ED or a mental health unit, for assessment. It doesn't guarantee an admission. Now, importantly, too, it does not allow a person to be detained and given involuntary treatment in a general hospital. They have to be taken to a declared facility for assessment to determine whether they need treatment involuntarily for a mental illness. Could you give us some guidance as to some of the important things we should ensure that we complete on the Schedule 1? Importantly on the schedule, indicate if you're a doctor, a medical doctor, On top of the form, you should strike out the part that says accredited person because you're a medical officer. Now, in the Mental Health Act form, it has options for mentally ill and mentally disordered. The Mental Health Review Tribunal prefers that you strike out the irrelevant bit. So, for example, mentally disordered, you cross out mentally ill, mentally ill, cross out mentally disordered. And on the page two of the form, where it gets signed is about two-thirds of the way down the page. That's where it actually becomes an enforceable legal order that that person be taken to a declared facility for assessment. At the bottom of the form, there's a section there that obliges police to assist with the transfer. That's only used in unusual circumstances and highly dangerous circumstances. The vast majority of the time, that's, that's left blank and that's fine. patient, he was brought to the emergency department by police under a section 22 of the Mental Health Act. And we sometimes also have patients brought in by ambulance under a section 20 of the Mental Health Act. Can you explain how these work? Okay, well, police have authority under the Mental Health Act to um, detain a person and take them to a declared facility for assessment um, in limited circumstances. So their, their scope for doing that is much narrower than what a medical officer has. Um, Police can only detain a person and take them for assessment if they're committing a crime uh, or they're an immediate risk to themselves or others. If it's just that they're acting in a peculiar fashion but they're not obviously jeopardising their health or anyone else's safety, then police have no grounds to take that person. But if they detain a person who's committed a crime, for example, shoplifting, and it appears to the police this person appears to be mentally ill, 
they can choose to take that person to a declared facility for assessment. And that determines then whether the person requires involuntary treatment in a mental health unit. If at the end of that assessment, it's determined, no, that person's not mentally ill, then police can choose to proceed to charge that person with the crime. So that's really a a point at which a person can be diverted from custody as a result of having a mental illness and acting in a strange fashion at home. Ambulance also have the authority to detain people who they believe are acting in a dangerous manner. Their scope is a little bit broader, but again, it's quite narrow. The person has to be very clearly acting in a dangerous manner or perilous condition to be taken to a declared facility. So that gives certainty to the police and ambulance that they can take a person to an assessment if they believe they're immediate peril. Okay. And when they bring those Section 20 or 22 forms in, is there anything in particular that we should actually have a look at on those forms to help us? It's very important, especially when police bring people in, that they do the Section 22 form. Because they're not employed in health, they don't do any mental health, uh, sorry, any health documentation, ambulance do. So when ambulance brings someone in, there's an ambulance worksheet. So there's a lot of details about where the person was, what they were doing, which are already on the um, the ambulance worksheet. So the Mental Health Act form for ambulance is one page. It's very brief. It really specifies why they believe that person needed to be brought in. The police schedule is two pages. It's a front and a back of a sheet. Um, It has a lot more tick boxes, a lot more information they need to include on that form. A very important part of the form is on the back of the form, at the top, it indicates whether police want to be notified of the outcome of the assessment. Okay. Because remember, they've brought a person in in custody, they've arrested a person who's committing a crime. Uh, If they want to be informed of the outcome, they need to tick that box and put their details in so that the health workers who do the assessment can then contact the police and inform them of the outcome. Okay, I see. I would just like to note that in this podcast, and often in practice, we sometimes use the term scheduled more broadly to refer to a patient who has had either a Schedule 1 by a doctor or a Section 20 by paramedics or Section 22 by the police completed. Although this may not be entirely accurate, the term scheduled is used to convey to staff that the patient now legally needs to be detained for a mental health assessment. Now, for our hypothetical patient, he's assessed by the mental health clinician and in consultation with the psychiatry registrar at our referral centre, it is decided he will require admission. What form should I fill out in this instance where the patient has already been sectioned by the police and how should I go about filling it out? Okay. Yeah, so what we're on to now is what's in the legislation called the first formal examination. And this is where an authorised medical officer comes in. So any doctor can do a schedule, any medical officer, but only an authorised medical officer can do a form one, which is the first formal examination of the person. So police have brought this person in, he's clearly unwell, he's responding to aliens, etc., and he's acting in a dangerous manner. So he would clearly come under the act as a mentally ill person. If on examination it became apparent, it was confirmed, yes, this person does have delusions, hallucinations, etc., and yes, he does require inpatient mental health treatment, then what we complete is a Form 1, okay. uh, which is different to the Schedule 1. There's a lot of confusion because they sometimes get mixed up. But the Form 1 now says this person is a detained person and they must be admitted to an inpatient mental health unit and receive treatment. So am I correct in summarising we do a Schedule 1 
for a patient who has not already been scheduled or sectioned, and a Form 1 for those that are already under a section or schedule that we think need to be admitted to that's, a facility. That's correct. Facility. If a person presents to an ED or is brought in by family members or friends or what have you, and it becomes apparent in the emergency department they're very unwell and high risk, then you would start with a Schedule 1. If in this scenario that we were talking about, the person was found on the street and police or ambulance scheduled the person and brought them in, then the formal examination, what we do is a Form 1. So that sends this. We would then consult with the uh, inpatient mental health unit, with the consultant psychiatrist or the registrar, and confirm with them, yes, this person is clearly mentally unwell and needs treatment. So they're now a detained person. They will then be taken to an inpatient mental health unit for admission. Okay. Now, is there a time frame within which the Form 1 must be completed after a Section 20 or 22? Uh, yes, any schedule, so whether it's done by a doctor or a police or ambulance, once the person is brought to the declared mental health facility, the emergency department, the first Form 1 must be completed within 12 hours of their arrival. Okay. So on the Mental Health Act forms, there's dates, but there's no times. And that's reflected in the fact that the time starts from the moment of getting to the emergency department. So for our purposes, in an emergency department, we would take the time being from the time of triage, the time the person is registered as arriving at that emergency department, that's when the 12 hours starts. Okay, which is relevant for rural areas where it can sometimes take quite some time to get the patient to the hospital. Now, is there anything I need to provide to the patient in terms of their rights when they're being involuntarily detained? Yes, when a person is being involuntarily detained, we've got to give them what's called a Schedule 3, which is a statement of their rights. And it must be explained to them what their, what their rights are. So they have the right, if, if the person is detained under the Mental Health Act as an involuntary patient, so Form 1's been done, they have the right to appeal to the Mental Health Review Tribunal and they can appeal to the superintendent, etc. as well. And these details are in, included in the written material given to the patient. They're available in multiple languages through various websites. So if the person's from a non-English speaking background, uh, we determine what um, language they they speak. We can very often find it on the website. It's quite comprehensive. Failing that, we also have the telephone interpreter service. We can actually contact them to talk with them, also importantly, to their family. Yes, um, of course. To explain to them what the processes are and what's happening. Yes. Oh, very good. Now... Um, In small rural centres, we need to transfer patients to a psychiatric facility. Is there any form I need to complete in relation to this transfer? Yes. In this scenario where you're describing this person being brought in, we've assessed them, we've confirmed that, yes, this person does have mental illness, a Form 1's been completed. What we should be completing is what's called a Section 78 form, which is um, a legal obligation to inform the person's next of kin or their primary carer, that the person is being taken to another facility. Um, It's good practice anyway, but this is actually a legal obligation. We have to make every effort, every reasonable effort to contact this person and let them know. And when we've done that, we tick the form to say, yes, we've explained this to the person's significant other, or no, we haven't been able to get a hold of them. And that form then accompanies the person on their journey to the next facility. Okay, very good. Now, often these our departments get, you know, very busy. If the medical officer realises that they actually made a, you know, a minor error on a form, 
Is there a way that this can be corrected? Yes, and I must say this is probably probably one of my favourite parts of the Mental Health Act. It allows us to be human. It's uh, Section 193 of the Act, which actually gives us 28 days to correct any error on the form. Okay. So if we've misspelled the person's name or we've uh, put the wrong names in the wrong spots or we've done the wrong form, so if we've done a Form 1 instead of a Schedule 1 or vice versa, this gives us great scope to fix the legal paperwork and ensure the person gets to where they need to be and get treated without them having to go on some absurd journey back and forward between facilities because of a clerical error. And importantly, it's 28 days and it gives great latitude. So, for example, if a doctor wrote the wrong form and he's then on leave for the next three months, having a happy time somewhere on holiday, and he's not available, the Act gives us great scope to ensure that we can get that form completed by another person. Okay. Oh, no, that's that's reassuring. Now, if a doctor or nurse in the emergency department is unsure as to how to manage a situation, where can they get support? It depends on the service. Different services in New South Wales have different support um, from mental health specialists. So our larger regional hospitals in New South Wales will often have um, consultation liaison psychiatry members. Yes. For other local health districts, they might be uh, mental health expertise available through a telephone service or telehealth service. So with that, I'd, I'd advise you to check with your local health service Mm-hmm. your local health district, um, how you expert access that expertise in, in your local region. It differs across the state. Okay. All right. Now, the Emergency Care Institute of New South Wales site has a mental health section page, which includes links to the Mental Health for Emergency Department Reference Guide, mm-hmm. as well as Management of Patients with Acute Severe Behavioural Disturbance Guideline, and also the Emergency Management of the High Risk Mental Health Patient Brochure as well as 24-hour contacts and patient fact sheets. So I'd recommend people have a look at that site with those great resources. Now, Andrew, are there any other comments you'd like to make in regard to the Mental Health Act in the emergency department? I'd say that it's, it's, uh, it's extraordinary legislation. It is extraordinarily powerful legislation. It allows us to deprive a person of their liberty, which is a foundation of our society, is that you've got autonomy, you can do what you wish. So it's extraordinarily powerful. We can actually take a person's liberty from them, take them where they don't want to go and give them treatment. So we have to be careful that we're exercising it judiciously. We're exercising that extraordinary authority in the least restrictive manner. And least restrictive doesn't mean no restrictions. There are times where people are dangerous and their illness is very severe and we need to take their liberty away from them and provide the treatment they need. There are safeguards in place to ensure that that's not being abused. And one of the things is um, if you're working in a facility that's got a declared, is a declared mental health facility, there'll be a thing called, uh, people called official visitors. And they're they're obliged, they work for the Office of the Minister of Health to ensure that people's rights are being respected and they're not being abused and that processes are being followed. So familiarise yourself with official visitors and what what the questions they'll be asking because there are safeguards in place. This is extraordinary legislation, so we need these extraordinary safeguards. Yes, of course. And I, I think that, you know, part of us trying to manage these complex situations is having a better understanding of the Mental Health Act, how we should use that, and the forms that go along with enforcing those things. So thank you very much, Andrew, for the discussion today. That's really cleared up some of those issues greatly, and I really appreciate you um, spending this time with us today. Okay, thank you for your time. All right, thanks again. All the best. Bye-bye.